Gateway, good day to you. I'm Kyle, I'm a pastor here. If you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to the Gospel according to Mark. And we'll be picking right up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 6, uh, specifically verse 31. And this week we come to what is arguably one of the most known passages about Jesus' life and ministry. It's a story that appears in all four gospel accounts. It's a story that invokes curiosity and interest in some and uh, like disdain and doubt in others. Sometimes it's contested, but most of the time it's just bypassed. It's just familiar. And that's a lot, a lot of buildup. My hunch is that you've heard about this story, this story about Jesus feeding the multitude, his feeding of the 5,000. And whatever familiarity you think you have about this passage, however many times you've heard this passage taught or referenced or alluded to or read in like a Jesus storybook Bible, like all of that, here's my request. Listen like it's your first time. Let us all in these next few moments come to this passage, come to God's living word like it's your first time. In other words, check yourself, don't check out. Stay present, that's my request. Don't act like you already know where the story is going, but be here in it with us. And this is a, a fitting posture for us to have as we come to today's text because this is the place where we see that out of lack, Jesus provides greatly. That from the place of lack, there is power in God's presence. And so as we come to verse 31, I'm just going to read the whole passage in its entirety. So that's verses 31 to 44. Then I'm going to pray. And then we're just going to work our way back through the passage line by line. So without further ado, Mark chapter 6, verse 31, this is what we read. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a, the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot all the towns ran there on foot and got there ahead of him. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them. This is Jesus speaking. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets of broken pieces and of the fish. 
And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks because you are worthy of our thanks. There are many things in these moments, in this day, in this certain point in human history that would pull away our gratitude from you. And yet what we want to say in this moment is that you are worthy of our thanks. And so we just, we pause to reorient our hearts to you. We pause to ask that you would meet us afresh in your word, that you would help us to see past our preconceptions, that you would help us to see Jesus's power in the lack today. God, would you like fill my mind and my heart with the power of your spirit? Would you anoint my lips in this time as we work through your word? Would you um, like sow this word deeply in our hearts so that we might grow in trust of your provision? God, meet us through the power of your word and your living spirit, we pray. Amen. So just by way of reminder, this story doesn't just drop out of heaven and into our like children's storybook Bibles. <laughs> no. um, this, it doesn't, this, this story doesn't live in isolation from the rest of the gospel according to Mark. Therefore, when we come to this episode, all of Jesus's ministry comes with us. It's all in view. So let's just recall here before we get into the meat of it, that Jesus's ministry it's a ministry marked by mercy and justice, mercy for the oppressed and justice for the vulnerable. It's really, it's a ministry for all the wrong people. It's for the unclean and the women and the Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish. It's a ministry that ends up yielding opposition amongst the religious elite, those who you think would get it. And Jesus's own family, they reject him. Those who are most familiar with Jesus push him to the edge of cliffs. And then on top of all of that, just this past week, we see that Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, the, the prophet literally preparing the way for the Messiah, J Jesus, was beheaded as a political prisoner by a wannabe king. Needless to say, up until this point, it has been a wild ride for Jesus and his disciples. I mean, just a few episodes ago, the disciples were out proclaiming the kingdom of God, casting out demons. There's actual, there's been movement toward the good news of God being proclaimed. And yet here, we see that there's a little bit of a shift. There's a need emerging amongst Jesus and his followers. And so it makes sense that Jesus's words would be as they are in verse 31. It's this call to a desolate place. It's a call to rest. And to be specific, in the face of rejection and grief, re rejection by his family and grief over the beheading of his cousin, Jesus' response is good. It is silence. It is solitude. It is to withdraw into the presence of God, not just to like loathe within himself, but lament is this pathway to care. It's this place to be present to God. It's the recovery of his soul and spirit we could say. This is the space, as Jan Johnson says, who's a spiritual director and teacher, she says, this is where God does in us 
what we cannot do by just being good. Like we need something outside of ourselves to tend to our soul. This is what we would call the spiritual practice or the discipline of silence and solitude. And as modern apprentices of Jesus, we have a lot to learn from Jesus in this moment, specifically his reflex to be with God. And that reflex and how contrasting it is to our own, it draws out simple and sharp questions like, what's my reflex in the face of rejection? Like, what, do I, what do I do? Do I recoil within? How do I cope with stress? Can I be silent before God? Can I actually find rest before him, fully exposed? Who am I becoming apart from God? See, all of these questions and, and more arise out of this one moment. But, but this is not the trajectory of our text because the tone shifts quickly. Just glance once more at verse 33. This is what we read. Now, many saw them going and recognized them. So these are the crowds seeing the departure of Jesus and his disciples by on the Sea of Galilee. And if you think sea and you're thinking like, I, I don't know, a Mediterranean sea or something like that. No, think lake and Jesus and his disciples are going out and people can see them from the shore. And so they anticipate where they're going and meet them there. Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And we read this, when he went ashore, this is Jesus, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And let's just linger on this little passage for a moment. Can we all agree that this is far from convenient? In fact, I think it would be safe to say this is inconvenient. And can you imagine how you would respond in this moment? You go maybe for a little R&R to get away from the stress of work. And as you, I don't know, uh, get to your destination, you find all of your coworkers, your boss is there. <laughs> like some of you right now are feeling the anxiety of the moment. Yes, that's, that's the tone. But look at Jesus's response. Specifically, check out three things. First, Jesus sees the crowd. Second, Jesus has compassion. And lastly, the crowd, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so just a brief word on each. First, Jesus sees the crowd. This is what uh, Bible nerds like myself would, would call a verb of perception. It's uh, identifying what Jesus himself sees and it might just seem like this obvious sort of thing. Well, of, of course he sees a large crowd. There's all the towns are running to him and he steps to the shore. That's where they're at. Like, duh, that's, that's what's going on. But let's, take, let's just take stock of the significance of being seen. And let's do so by, by catalog, cataloging the opposite of being seen. So what is it to be unseen? So for me, I guess anecdotally, it, in my recent memory, there was this board meeting at an organization that I worked for a number of years ago, and it just sticks out in my mind. And leading up to that board meeting, myself and the other directors, like we, we were working hard, uh, getting our proposals ready to submit, getting our reports ready, all of that good board meeting stuff. But I never went to that board meeting because I was never invited to that board meeting. And then when I mustered up the courage to ask why, the response, a response that still stings today, 
the response was just, oh, we, we forgot about you. That scene has played like a reel in my mind as of late. I mean, this is just one moment, but what if that was your whole life? I mean, this moment stands out to me because it was exceptional. That is to say, it's not my norm. But just imagine if this is your whole life, the whole of your human experience is to be forgotten. What's that feel like? To, to be unseen and overlooked? What, what sort of longings would stir and fester in your heart? What sort of bitterness would you carry? I mean, this is one moment and I'm like, I'm still processing through the bitterness in that. Now just imagine the cumulative weight of a whole life not being seen. If, if we could hear, like just, just imagine if there were a, a people group, thousands upon millions of people who've lived their whole lives, generation after generation, not being seen and heard. I, imagine what they might wanna say. Well, the moment we find ourselves in, finds their voice actually coming up. We, we hear it. For some of us, for the first time ever. So you wonder, what might they say? Well, uh, Carl Lentz, he's a, a pastor in New York City, uh, interviewed uh, Bishop T.G. Jakes, and he speaks to this. He speaks to the silencing, the overlooking, and, and he says this. He says, see that I'm human. Come into my house, eat my food, see my kids. See that I love my kids like you love your kids. See that I am human. And now think about the backdrop of the story we're in. The story about a power-hungry Roman governor who beheads God's prophet to uphold a drunken oath. This is the tone of the leadership for the crowd. This is what they live under. This is how they are unseen. This is how they're overlooked. Because the ones placed in charge of caring for them only care for themselves, only look out for their interests, only manage their image, but they fail to see the images of God all around them. See this no king from the text we covered last week here at Antipas? He doesn't see the needs of the people because he's blinded by his own self-interest and disordered desires. And now contrast that with Jesus who shows up and sees the crowd. But not just that, he sees them and he has compassion on them. And that brings us to our second observation, that Jesus has compassion. I mean, you could say it this way, Jesus doesn't look away from the pain. When he sees the crowd, he fully sees them. He sees into their pain and it evokes in him compassion. And that largely stands in contrast both to, to Herod, but also to the disciples and their desire to dismiss the crowd just a few verses later, but that's not all. And the next point may, may feel a little tangential, but I think that it helps us to see how Jesus sees the crowd with compassion. So just stay with me here. The word that Mark uses for compassion is this word that can refer to your guts, and that's why I'm asking you to stay with me because I know that sounds weird, but it's this word that can be uh, 
like your inner parts, because there's no mind in the Hebrew imagination. It's you feel from your inner parts. You could say these are your feelers. And in a contemporary work to Mark, and actually a contemporary writer, Josephus, is on the scene, who's a historian in the first century. Uh, He's thought to compose this, this work called Four Maccabees. Some people think it's a little sermon or some sort of philosophical treaty, but that's an aside. So Josephus has Four Maccabees written, and the feelers show up in this text. And this is what's intriguing. The author, Josephus, he ranks a mother's maternal instinct, her compassion is the word he uses, beneath masculine rationality. And he, just, just to like give a little clarity, here's the specific quote from 4 Maccabees. But pious reason, acting as a man in the midst of those sufferings, those sufferings are the martyrdoms of the martyrs of her sons, the the death of her sons. But pious reason, acting as a man in the midst of those sufferings, incited her inner parts to disregard the temporary parental love. So you could say it this way. She sucked it up and acted like a man. That would be a very modern and callous translation of those words. But in a social context that outright favors men, where the masculine is put on women to honor the women, Jesus has compassion. Let me just say that again. Jesus has compassion. He doesn't disregard the pain. Rather, in Jesus' own time of need, he sees the needs of others. It's like lament is the pathway for care in Jesus' economy. What I love about Jesus is is he doesn't shame. He he doesn't shame us in our need. Or or say that we need to work harder or that we need to be better or that we need to pray more. There is always an invitation for more prayer and intimacy with God, but it's not a task to be completed. It's an invitation to relationship with the God of the cosmos. I mean, can I, like, that's like an amen moment right there. Jesus doesn't shame us in our need. Jesus knows that in God's economy, there is power in our lack. That's why compassion arises, because when he looks at the crowds, they're like sheep without a shepherd. See, lastly, Jesus is not inconvenienced by the crowd because these are the ones to whom he sent. See, elsewhere in the Gospels, specifically the Gospel according to John, we'll see that Jesus just comes right out and says it. He says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. So he clears up what's left a little bit mysterious here. And Jesus is like the words of, the, of Moses in Numbers 27, they find their rest, their completion. In Numbers 27, we, actually, we read this. He says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. See, all throughout the Hebrew Bible, 
the prophets are talking about the scattering of the people of Israel like sheep. And Jesus comes. He sees the crowd. He has compassion on them and they are like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, the good shepherd has arrived in Jesus and he sees the needs of his people. That is a beautiful thing to realize that in the face of Jesus, there is compassion looking back at us. And even when Jesus was weary, he didn't neglect the needs of his own, but he fed them with his living word. Mark says he teaches the crowds many things. He has much to give out of his lack. So what do you think he has to give out of resurrection power? We'll we'll come back to that. But for now, look what flows out of this. Go to verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. See, um, fun little trivia fact. I guess it's not trivia fact. Uh, In grad school, I worked at a sheep farm. (laughs) And let me just say this. uh, Sheep aren't, it's not a flattering comparison. Uh, So maybe you picture lammy or something like that, lamb chop. Sheep, it's not a flattering comparison for followers of Jesus. Sheep, when they're left to their own devices, they will graze down to the roots. They will stomp out all opportunity for growth unless they are led to a place where they can flourish or in the language of the the scriptures, led to green pastures. Jesus is the shepherd. The disciples, you and, and me, we all sit at the feet of Jesus, our shepherd and our rabbi. We sit at the feet of Jesus to be with him, to become like him, to do what Jesus did. So if Jesus cares for the sheep, we're called to care for the sheep. If if Jesus has compassion on the sheep, we're called to have compassion on the sheep. If Jesus just looks at the sheep, if he sees them, we are called to see them. So let me just be as clear as I can here. We are not Jesus in this story. We're not even the crowds in this story. You and me and the disciples, that, that's who we are. We're the disciples in this story. We're the disciples with a spirit of entitlement. So when we see the crowd, we see someone else's problem, just send them away. Send them away, have them buy themselves something to eat. This is someone else's problem, someone else's solution. And this is ridiculous, and it's, it's so obvious how ridiculous it is, how in contrast it is to the way of Jesus, and yet this is often, this is often how we act. We remind Jesus of his responsibilities rather than taking up the way of Jesus, our birthright in Christ, to love and to serve. Instead, we, like, we argue with Jesus. I mean, just look down to verse 37. This is what we read, but Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. Just pause right there. That is a command. You give them something to eat. But look what the disciples say. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and and give it to them to eat? And he he said to them, "How how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. If Jesus' command feels a little punchy, maybe even a bit out of place, just remember that his disciples, just a few episodes ago, carried his name with authority into the surrounding villages. 
and demons were cast out. They were preaching with authority where people actually felt the authority of God and were turning to him in trust. The, the sick were healed. And not only that, just a few episodes before that, they were with Jesus when he spoke peace to the wind and the waves and they obeyed him. They have all of the means possible to display God's power and lack because Jesus is with them. But instead, they get into like a little spat with Jesus. We could say it this way. Despite Jesus' power there with them, the disciples, they have this scarcity mentality. It's this um, way of seeing the world that views lack as the place of powerlessness. It views all of the world in like, I need to get and, and build up my storehouses because I don't know when I'm going to run out. But on the other hand, Jesus' view of the world is through the lens of God's generosity. In his frame of thinking, lack is actually power. It's the place where, where God gets to display his generous love. It's the place of dependence upon God. And this isn't, this isn't a moment where I'm like critiquing people who have large bank accounts and 401k, all that stuff. Like steward things wisely, have money, give it away, steward it in the name of Jesus. Yes and amen. The point here, the point that Jesus is leaning into is that he is literally with them. He's, he's in the flesh, the agent of reconciliation. And they want to send Jesus' sheep away. Lack is the place of power because lack is the place where God's power shows up. It magnifies the love of God. It makes much of God. It's, it's what gives Jesus the confidence to say what he does next in verse 39. Go there with me. He says, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, most likely making it easier to distribute the food. Some think, um, is this like a military type census thing going on here because there's 5,000 men, so these are going to be people who are revolting. And put all that aside, remember, we're hearing this afresh. Jesus is having them sit down. And where does he have them sit down? In the green grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they ate and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. See, it's easy at this point to uh, lose the plot line. And, and just like that little interlude I had a moment ago, uh, Bible nerds like myself, we get all caught up in the numbers and the symbolic significance. And, oh, we know yeah, all four gospels have the same values and they stay consistent throughout them all. What's going on there? And so we, we start to nerd out in that little space. And, and, and then we see that Jesus is breaking the bread just like he's going to do in the Last Supper. We see what's called like Eucharistic value, which is just a fancy term to say, this is the Lord's Supper. <sighs> but let's just take a breath. Because this is where Bible nerdery can kind of get us off the hinges. Resist. Resist with me, church. Jesus is blessing. It's the same blessing that a Jewish head of household would provide, where the bread would be broken, that, that God would, would be called upon to bless it. It's pretty simple. The, the numbers, 
the scarcity, the lack magnifies the miracle. There's power in lack. So let me just ask you this question. If this isn't about numbers and um, like symbolic reference points, what's all this talk about lack? Well, perhaps this is an inflection point for us to ask ourselves, where do we think that we lack? Where is our vision of the world more like the disciples than Jesus? And probably this, how does our scarcity mindset impact our allegiance to Jesus? Where have we doubted his ability to provide? So what do you think you lack? Do, do you lack control? Do you lack physical resources? Money, food, clothing? Do you lack love, intimacy, friendship? What do you lack? See, I, I don't mean to make light of lack. If you don't have your physical needs met, to have your physical needs met is a beautiful thing. It is a necessary thing. And likely you won't even consider other elements before those physical needs are met. It is a good thing for the church in the name of Jesus to meet physical needs. But let's just be honest. We live where we live in the time that we do. And for most of us, physical needs are not things we, we don't even consider them. So when we start thinking about where we lack, it's a little different than where our next meal is coming from. You see, in every space that we identify lack is the place for us to ask a question beneath the question, and it's this. Is God generous? And that simple answer to this question is yes. Yes, he is, and, and more. That he sees us in our need, that he has compassion, and that he leads us into places of abundance. You see, this whole passage, it's like Mark is echoing the provision of God, the generosity of God. And we, it, uh, you don't have to just take my word for it. We actually can see this clearly in the scriptures. So uh, listen to these words. List, just listen to the character of God here in Psalm 23. This is a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters or beside waters of rest. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths and paths of righteousness for his namesake. And then listen to this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of deep darkness, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Even in the valley of death, the place of deep darkness, the goodness and mercy of God cannot be shut out in Christ Jesus because he sees you. He sees us 
And I don't think he just sees his sheep, the crowds. I think he sees his disciples. I think his calling them out, you feed them, is a reminder of who they are. And so if this is who we are in the story, perhaps we need to hear Jesus again. You feed them. You move toward action. You be stirred by the need. Love what I love. Despise what I despise. Knowing that even when death is there, goodness and mercy are more present than death. And we can only say these things because we know the end of the story. We know that our hope is is not just these days. Our hope is not for this moment or the next one. Our hope is beyond that. It's a resurrection hope that gets to break in from the heavens into this present moment. And I love the way that New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it. He says that our hope, it's not life after death. It is the life after the life after death. In other words, our hope is a resurrection hope. And this is the place where Jesus leads us. This is the place of plenty. The place of plenty is the renewal of all things, where neither death nor tears nor sickness abide, but life and life to the full. They abide there. That's where they live. The disciples, you and me, a vision for this life is what we have when we admit it. The crowd also. But Jesus's vision, and thereby the invitation to us, Jesus's vision is fixed on the God who's magnified in the face of lack, who has power in the lack. It's a vision that compels us to follow Jesus. That that, that knowing that even in the face of death, death, death on a Roman cross, that we can say, your will be done, not ours. The irony of Jesus's death in all of this is is that for all of Jesus's contemporaries, for him to die, especially at the hands of the Romans, meant that Rome's gods were more powerful than Jesus's God, than than Yahweh. It It means that Rome won. The irony is that Jesus' death on the cross is his exaltation because God vindicated Jesus. He vindicated Jesus from death, raising him to life in resurrection power, never to taste death again. That is the hope with which we need to fix our eyes in this present moment. sometimes it sounds so misplaced. And our friends and your colleagues, even our family members will say, that's nice. Here in the real world, we're faced with systemic racism, injustices, and a a global pandemic. So um, why don't you stop being so heavenly minded and start being earthly good? Those are the things that get said. And we need to be able to receive those moments with grace and compassion We need to be able to receive those rebukes with love on our lips 
If we don't know the strain that's happening in other people's lives, we don't know if they're able, like what they're able of, but for we, for us, for you and me who are situated, who are found in Christ Jesus, we can say something different because we don't live with scarcity in our minds. We live with the generous love of God in our hearts because our God, he turns graves into glory. He has power and lack. The resurrection presence of Jesus is the thing that's empowering us then to take up the way of Jesus and love out of our lack. So my curiosity, just like last week, is will we do it? Will we be a people who in the, when, when we need and others need, will we say, you hold on, let me just attend to myself because I can only give out of what I have before we go there? Or will we say, God, you provide even in the face of lack. You're going to be more magnified when this need over here is met because I'm empty, but you fill. I don't speak of this as one who does it well. But there's an urgency that this moment invites us into, to see in Jesus a new way forward. That is our invitation. So let us pray. Jesus, you hear us, and you see us, and you know us, and you invite us to do things like pick up our crosses and follow you daily, to deny ourselves, to push back against the powers of this world, and embrace a upside-down power that doesn't fight for its own way, it doesn't contend for its rights, but it owns its responsibilities at the feet of Jesus, and serves. So God, would you burden our hearts? Would you burden our hearts and help us to see the needs of our city and love those who are around us? Amen.